Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to do a couple housekeeping things. Uh, first of all, we now have a Twitter. It's uh, Disastrous History, but it's H-S-T-R-Y instead of H-I-S-T-O-R-Y. Thank you, Twitter, for only allowing a certain number of characters. Um, we also have a new Instagram, thanks to my lovely wife. It is Disastrous History, uh, spelled correctly. And I will be using both of those in the future to post photographs and more accounts and various other historical things that I come across. So if you want to follow us there, that'd be great. Um, you'll find more interesting things there that I can't fit into a podcast episode or maps or pictures that are not suitable for an audio listening experience. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was several of you had requested over the past week that I give more of my background. I'll just come right out and say it. I am not a historian. I didn't go to school for history. Uh, I went to school for fire, arson, explosion investigation. That's what my bachelor's degree is in, and I'm currently getting a second bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. I am a fire investigator for my day job. Um, hope to be promoted to a full mechanical engineer once I finish the degree. But I have investigated in about 600 to 700 fire scenes uh, over the past five years. I have done car fires, apartment fires, house fires, explosions, gas explosions, dust explosions, pretty much any kind of fire you can think of. I have been to one of them, at least. The other thing is, is I was a volunteer firefighter for five years, uh, starting before college and all through college. I have helped with uh, disaster recoveries, uh, floods, tornadoes, obviously fires, car accidents, basically anything but hurricanes or earthquakes, because I'm from the Midwest, so we don't really have hurricanes or earthquakes here. So, with that being said... This week's episode is a sticky and sweet-smelling mess. This week's episode is on the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. The flood occurred on January 15, 1919, at about 12.30 p.m. at the Purity Distilling Company located at 529 Commercial Street in Boston, Massachusetts. That area is the north end of Boston. It sits literally right on Boston Harbor. The container that ruptured was close enough to Boston Harbor that the molasses could be taken directly from the boat and placed into the container without having to run any special hoses or dumping into a truck and then relaying it via truck into the vault. That it was literally just drive the boat right up to the dock, put it in the vat, drive the boat away again. The container in question was extremely large. It was approximately 50 feet tall and around 90 feet in diameter. That makes the total volume of the container that could contain molasses to be right around 2.3 million gallons. And you would think that with Prohibition coming up and the end of World War I, that it would not be completely filled to capacity. But again, as you learn when studying history, especially in the case of disasters, the worst case scenarios are usually the ones that are happening. 
And when you think it can't get worse, it always, always, always can. And so, of course, the tank was completely full of all 2.3 million gallons of molasses. To put that much molasses into perspective, an Olympic-sized swimming pool contains about 660,000 gallons of water. So that's a little less than four Olympic-sized swimming pools of molasses. It was a lot of molasses. So what was this tank doing in Boston? Why was there 2.3 million gallons worth of molasses in Boston in the first place? Well, there are multiple reasons that are given depending on who you ask. The tank was built in 1915 by the Purity Distilling Company, a subsidiary of U.S. industrial alcohol. It was built to hold molasses shipped in from Cuba, Puerto Rico, and other places before it was pumped over to a distillery to make industrial alcohol. Industrial alcohol has many uses, but this being the mid-1910s, there was really only one use for industrial alcohol that was at all profitable. It is a major component in essentially every explosive used in World War I. In the days before the disaster, the container had been filled completely with a shipment. It is not known where the shipment arrived from, but working under the assumption the shipment of molasses arrived from Puerto Rico, and assuming a travel speed of approximately 15 miles an hour, that would be about eight days of nonstop sailing from the port in Puerto Rico to Boston Harbor. Obviously, in 1919, it was not ordered and shipped in eight days. So I think a safe assumption is about three to four months from order to gather to ship to drop off in the tank. That puts the order for molasses being placed in about October of 1918. By that time in 1918, Germany was making peace offers towards the Allies, and it was clear the war in Europe was winding down. So for them to order that much molasses with the war in Europe it basically ending and the need for explosives to be dropping rapidly, it really wouldn't make that much sense to have a shipment of that size sent in. It wouldn't make sense to have a shipment of that size sent in if you're using it for explosives. If you're using it for other things, like trying to get enough molasses in and alcohol made to beat the passage of Prohibition, then that would absolutely make sense. Many people believe that the Purity Distilling Company was trying to get as much molasses as they could so they could distill it into rum and grain alcohol before Prohibition ended. In one of the more spectacular coincidences of history, the 18th Amendment, prohibiting the sale, transport, and production of alcohol for consumption, was ratified the day after the flood. So the flood happened at 12.30 p.m. on January 15, 1919, and Nebraska became the 36th state to ratify the 18th Amendment on January 16, 1919. The distilling company would have known that this was coming as the amendment had been proposed by Congress back in December of 1917. So basically, from January 16, 1919, they had to sell as much alcohol as they could to still remain profitable for the year. And with the war in Europe ending, they didn't have that option. And with prohibition coming fast, they had to sell, sell, sell. Purity Distilling and U.S. Industrial Alcohol maintained that the molasses was going to be used in the making of explosives. Which makes sense, because in 1919, with alcohol being outlawed, making explosives was a better PR image than trying to make as much alcohol as they could before it was outlawed and trying to make money off of it.
So I guess it depends on if you think the company was merely patriotic victims of circumstance trying to help the rapidly dwindling need for a war effort, or were trying to make as much money as possible in the next year with a product that they were no longer going to be able to sell, and that most of the country had voted to outlaw. And that's all without getting into the actual issues with the container. The man who was the manager of the project to build the tank, Mr. Arthur Gell, the treasurer of U.S. Industrial Alcohol, the company that owned Purity Distilling, had no relevant experience to help aid in the building of this tank. He was not an architect. He was not an engineer. He was just a guy building a tank that was supposed to hold 2.3 million gallons of molasses. After the container was built, instead of filling it all the way with water, or literally anything else, to test the durability of the tank, he only filled the very bottom six inches. And so, of course, the container began to leak as soon as it was filled. The neighbors and workers nearby would complain of the tank moaning and groaning whenever it would be filled. Frequently, children would be seen around the sides of the tank collecting the molasses in buckets to take home or on sticks to make lollipops. It was an open secret that the tank leaked and probably wasn't stable. Eventually, the complaints of leaks and groaning noises and the neighborhood's general unease about the tank reached the ears of those in charge at Purity Distilling. It got so bad that a laborer took shards of the tank that had fallen off into Arthur Gell's office to show him the problems. So the company immediately took these problems seriously, right? Like, who would leave... A tank that's supposed to hold 2.3 million gallons of molasses and just ignore the problem when there's literal pieces falling off of it. Obviously, they would empty the tank and do safety testing and they would do inspections and they would fill it with water to check for leaks and they would fix those leaks and generally would try to do everything they could to prevent a catastrophe from happening. And no, that's, that's not what they did. Instead... Arthur Gell told the laborer that the tank was still standing, so there was no problem. And then they went to the tank and they painted it brown to mask the sight of the brown liquid leaking out of the tank. I mean, come on. Who has time for safety standards when there's sweet, sweet cash to be made? So clearly there were issues with the tank that were known for the years prior to the actual disaster. But let's get into the actual disaster itself. In the days leading up to the flood, the tank had been filled to capacity with about 600 to 800,000 gallons of molasses. There had already been 1.5 million gallons of molasses in the tank that was cold due to it being, you know, January in Boston. So the high temperature in the preceding days had been hovering between 0 and 10 degrees Fahrenheit. When warm molasses and cold molasses mix, it triggers a fermentation process that produces a gas. So, when you have a gas inside a confined space, it expands that confined space and makes structural flaws significantly more evident. And so, the entire time from the moment that shipment arrived to the moment of the collapse of the tank, people complained that the tank was whining and groaning. The gas caused the tank to expand and made an already bad situation worse. And so, at 12.30 p.m. on January 15, 1919, the inevitable happened. 
Workers were gathered around the area eating lunch, probably discussing the World Series that the Boston Red Sox had just won four months prior, when all of a sudden the ground started to shake, a low rumble was heard, followed by a loud crashing noise, and then what was described as a repetitive sound that sounded like a machine gun. Following that noise was a 25-foot high wave of pure molasses moving at a shockingly fast speed of 35 miles per hour. Boston patrolman Frank McManus was calling in for his daily report when he heard the loud noise, turned, and saw the giant wave of brown liquid rushing toward him, turned back to his call, and told him to send all available units that there was a massive flood coming down Commercial Street. The massive tidal wave of molasses spread out rapidly, crushing anything and everything in its path. It knocked a railroad track off its mount, it flattened homes, it picked an entire fire station up off its foundation and carried it down the street. Both people and animals were sucked into the encroaching sticky substance. One survivor named Anthony D'Astasio's account was described as he was walking homeward with his sisters from the Michelangelo school and was picked up by the wave and carried, tumbling on its crest, almost as though he were surfing. Then he grounded, and the molasses rolled him like a pebble as the wave diminished. He heard his mother call his name and couldn't answer. His throat was so clogged with the smothering goo. He passed out, and when he opened his eyes, he found three of his four sisters staring at him. And that leads to another one of the issues that made this way worse than it could have been. When the shipment of several hundred thousand gallons of molasses had arrived in the days before, it had been warmed to reduce the viscosity to make it easier to transfer. It was also already warm from the trip from the Caribbean. Things with high levels of viscosity do not flow well due to a high amount of friction within the liquid. When molasses is heated, the viscosity drops and allows for faster flow and allows for things to be trapped inside. It's why when you have hot pancakes and you pour maple syrup over it, the maple syrup seems to spread faster when it hits the hot pancakes. The air temperature on Boston that day was about 40 degrees, which also helped warm the already slightly warm molasses and allow it to spread quickly. The flood spread over several blocks and ended up being two to three feet deep across a major swath of Boston. It was sticky everywhere. The Boston Post described the aftermath as molasses, waist deep, covered the street and swirled and bubbled about the wreckage. Here and there struggled to form. Whether it was an animal or human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass, showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. And then, after the initial wave subsided, the city of Boston was stuck. Literally. The warmed-up molasses cooled off because, again, it's Boston in January and became viscous again, trapping victims within the sticky mess. The rescue efforts were slow. The first rescuers on scene were cadets from the USS Nantucket, which was a training ship from the nearby Massachusetts Maritime Academy. They ran to the disaster and immediately waded into the muck to try and pull people and animals from the mess. The rescue effort was almost impossible. Many victims were so trapped in the molasses that you couldn't tell what was actually a person or not. Many searchers gave up looking after four days because they just could not tell what was a victim and what was not. Several victims had been washed out into Boston Harbor and weren't found until months later. The flood ended up killing 21 people, 
many of those suffocating and drowning under a very sticky goo that filled their lungs and killed them. It also injured 150 people. Most of those were broken bones and concussions from being smashed against walls in the ground by the rapidly moving wave. One of the more strange stories from this already strange story to begin with, the next day, while firefighters, nurses, police officers, sailors, and hundreds of volunteers stood knee-deep in a sticky sludge, searching for survivors, a strange thing happened. Bells around the city began to ring out in joy. It had been announced that the last state to ratify the 18th Amendment, Nebraska, had just done so. So while all these people were standing in the beginnings of rum and grain alcohol, churches around the city were celebrating the outlawing of the very thing they were standing in. And then the cleanup began once the rescue effort was over. It took several weeks. Sand and salt water were used to clean away the molasses. Boston Harbor was brown until the summer. The sticky, sweet-smelling liquid was everywhere. And with so many people required to help clean up the mess, the stickiness traveled all over the city and the surrounding towns. It was on seats and door handles. You couldn't touch a surface in Boston without it being sticky. It was a constant reminder of the disaster that had befallen them. The cause of this disaster has never been conclusively determined to anyone's real satisfaction. Purity Distilling put forth their own theory of what happened. Their theory is they were maliciously attacked by anarchists and, quote, evilly disposed people, end quote, due to the molasses allegedly being used to create explosives. I think we can pretty much throw this one out. No eyewitnesses reported explosions or anything of that nature, and as we've already covered, it is way more likely they were using this molasses to make rum and grain alcohol in a last push before prohibition than some patriotic drive to make explosives for an essentially ended war in Europe. If you believe this story, I have oceanfront property in Nebraska to sell you. The next cause is an explosion within the tank. This is possible, but not super likely. Gas had been created within the tank due to a mixing of the colder and warmer molasses, but many of the observed failure points of the steel on the exterior of the tank do not line up with this cause. The last cause is a failure of the tank. This is the most likely cause. There had been report after report after report of the tank leaking and groaning and generally being a giant red flag waving in the wind saying, I'm going to fail and destroy half the town. But that wasn't it. The steel walls of the tank ranged from two-thirds of an inch at the bottom to less than a third of an inch at the top. This was not nearly enough to store the full weight of 2.3 million gallons of molasses. For reference, a gallon of molasses weighs around 11.5 pounds. 2.3 million gallons of molasses, then, weighs about 26.3 million pounds. It has been estimated that the walls needed to at least be doubled in width for it to properly hold that amount of weight. But that's not all. The rivets were also not strong enough and cracks quickly formed around them. But yet again, that is not all that was wrong. A key part of creating a steel structure that will survive in cold temperatures is a correct mixture of manganese. With a higher level of manganese within the steel, the tank could have kept its strength. However, because, and I know I've said this several times already, but seriously, it's January in Boston. It became brittle in the cold because they did not mix enough manganese in when they made the steel. And I just don't know how you don't plan for cold weather in the wintertime in Boston of all places. But again, you can't forget, 
the man that ran the building of this container was not an engineer, nor was he an architect. The average temperature in Boston in January is 36 degrees Fahrenheit. With the level of manganese in the tank walls, they would have become brittle at 59 or so degrees Fahrenheit. And in the days leading up to the actual flood, it was around 2 degrees Fahrenheit. And all of these things were absolutely known and could have been mitigated or completely fixed with the technology available in 1919. In the end, Purity Distilling and their parent company, U.S. Industrial Alcohol, ended up being found liable for the disaster. They paid around $628,000 for the disaster, and each family of the victims received about $7,000 for each victim. That's $9.3 million in today's money, and around $103,000 for each victim in today's money. One of the more enduring legacies of this disaster was the new requirement that all engineering plans had to be submitted to the city of Boston prior to the building and signed by a licensed architect and engineer. The north end of the city also would smell of molasses on hot days in the summer for the next several decades. It is rumored that on extremely hot days in North Boston, you can still smell the molasses even though it has been over a hundred years. The concrete slab this tank sat on remains to this day. It sits almost two feet below a baseball diamond in Langone Park. It is essentially the only reminder of a disaster that changed Boston forever. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode. Next week, we will cover the, and I'm very sorry, I will probably butcher this word multiple times. It's just how I talk. We're going to cover the Airfurt Latrine Disaster. Yes, that's right. I said latrine. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Remember to stay safe and always check your smoke detector batteries.